Morning, everybody. Keep your Bibles open there in Genesis chapter 2. We're going to begin there in just a moment. Welcome to everybody. It's good to have some of you back for the first time in a while. Um, thank God for that. And it's good to see all of you here. Good to be back with you all as well. And uh, worshiping God together. I feel like uh, the last... I don't know, 15 months have been one very long winter, and uh, maybe maybe finally we're starting to see spring break through. Daffodils are starting to poke out, and uh, hope is on the way. So uh, it's good to see everybody, and uh, thank God, as Mark prayed for uh, the beginning of spring. Um, thank you, brother. Appreciate all the songs that we're saying, all the words that were um, shared, and the prayers as well. So today um, I want to talk about marriage, and I always dread talking about marriage. Uh, it seems like every time I get up to preach on this subject, uh, Lindsay and I will have the biggest fight that we've had in a very long time. And so uh, pray for us as, uh, as we uh, talk about marriage today. I, I don't dread talking about it because of what the Bible says on it. It's a beautiful subject and uh, beautiful teachings from God that are so, so helpful, but uh, nevertheless challenging to live, uh, to live out. And last month we discussed living unmarried for the Lord. Uh, so I felt it was only right today to talk with you about living married for the Lord. Um, and I say that at the outset because if you're here and you are not married, um, or if you're watching this and you come across this and you're and you're unmarried, I'd really recommend to you, um, if you haven't already heard uh, that lesson from last month, to take the time to listen to that lesson so that you can balance the teaching today with what we have uh, discussed in the past month. But today I want to consider marriage and I want us to think about uh, what the Bible teaches us about the gift of marriage. Uh, I want us to think about what the Bible teaches us about some of the challenges of marriage. And, um, and also want us to ponder, why did God create marriage to begin with? What was God's purpose given behind it? And again, we're going to begin with Scripture. Now, there are many other places you can turn, and you may even be tempted to turn, um, for wisdom and advice on marriage. Uh, but none of those places can compare with the Lord. Uh, after all, um, in fact, there, there might be, there are many places that can actually harm your understanding of marriage. Many of the places that we're tempted to turn to for wisdom and advice may actually lead us uh, astray. There's a lot of uh, romantic movies out there that will tell you all sorts of lies about marriage and what marriage is, is like. And I've told you before, I think, that um, Disney has done a lot of damage to my understanding of uh, marriage and my thoughts and my perspective on it. Uh, I certainly believe that when uh, Lindsay and I got married uh, almost, what is it, eight years now, almost eight years ago, that we would ride off into the sunset and live happily ever after in New York City. Um, I was woefully unprepared for many of the challenges, no, in spite of the fact that we had great counselors surrounding us and warning us about them. Uh, so I quickly learned that the hard way that marriage takes a lot of hard work. Um, don't expect every romantic encounter to be as passionate and 
and as perfect as they portray it in the movies. Even if you interview some of those actors, they will admit that they don't enjoy those encounters as the movies often portray it. Um, and instead of turning to our culture, let me suggest for advice on how to live married, we ought to turn to scripture. Now, the reason for that is uh, who knows better how to work something that is made than the maker of that thing itself? Who knows better how to uh, make marriage work than the one who created it and the one who created both man and woman in his image? He is the same God who created marriage and he created marriage with a purpose. Uh, If you want to know how to have a wonderful marriage, you need to follow the plan of the God who created it which means that we need to be more influenced by God's word as it pertains to marriage and how to make marriage work than we are influenced by any other thing or any other person in this world. Um, If we are willing to submit to God's design for marriage, we will find that it is most certainly a tremendous blessing far beyond uh, what we could even imagine. But if we do not submit to God's plan for marriage, we can just as certainly expect the opposite to be true. Um, As the man who did my wedding remarked, he said, marriage may be the closest thing on earth you will experience to heaven or the closest thing you experience to hell. And you will choose which one you get to experience. Um, We need to think about this because... uh, God designed marriage to prepare us for heaven. God designed marriage to prepare us for eternity uh, with him. And if you choose to submit to God's plan for marriage, your relationship with your spouse, in fact, may become the closest thing to heaven you experience on this earth. And I just want to say this to those who are not married and maybe uh, hearing this or or in our presence today. Um, There's a lot that you can learn from marriage, about our relationship with God, and about our um, uh, the oneness that God intends us to have. And so I don't want us to get the idea that this lesson is just for the married couple. I'll try to make that more clear as we go through this um, and talk about this further. But there are three foundational texts in Scripture that serve as what I would call the pillars for the biblical teaching about marriage. The first is the one that our brother Nelson just read for us in Genesis chapter 2, verses 15 to 25. And I would suggest that this text really serves as the cornerstone on which the rest of the scriptures teaching on marriage is laid out. Um, The others are Matthew chapter 19, verses 1 through 12. Uh, That's the text where Jesus um, exposits Genesis 2, 15 to 25. And, uh, and he gives the biblical grounds for divorce, to which the disciples respond and say, if marriage is going to be like this, then isn't it just better not to marry at all? And Jesus says, yeah, pretty much. Uh, at least for some of you all, that's the way it may need to be. And the last of the three pillars is Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22 to 33, where Paul compares the relationship between a husband and a wife with the relationship between Christ and his church. Now, we're not going to explore today in detail, in the detail that each of these texts deserves. Um, We're not going to, we don't have the time to do that. But if you want to know the foundation for everything we are talking about and everything we are discussing, those are three important texts to write on your heart 
and to be very familiar with. So here's what I want to do with you in the rest of our time. I want to talk about the gift of marriage, the blessing that God intended marriage to be, um, and how marriage can become a blessing. And then I want to talk about um, some of the challenges that come with being married um, for the Lord. Uh, And then finally, I just want to give some practical advice, both to those of you who are unmarried and to those who are married about how to uh, glorify God in marriage and how to help those who are married to, uh, to glorify God in their marriages as well. So let's start with the gift of marriage here in Genesis chapter two. Now, notice in this text, the first thing that we see is the need for marriage. God creates man, puts man in the garden to keep it. And everything up until this time in the book of Genesis, God has looked at and he said, this is good. This is good. But the text tells us in chapter uh, chapter two and verse 18 that the, then the Lord God said, it is not good. That ought to shock us as we're reading this text for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. It's not good for man to be alone. And God designed marriage for this purpose because man without woman was incomplete in the garden. So God made the woman so that the husbands would be helped in their weaknesses by their wives and so that the wives would be strengthened also by the love and care of their husbands. Together, they would be complete. And God's plan for marriage is given at the time of creation here when he says, a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife and the two become one flesh. Notice what the text is saying here. Two people, male and female, come together to create a new family, a new relationship, a oneness that God has intended. And I love this because uh, really here, he's kind of laying out the plan. Like this is how it works, a man. um, You might think about the, the significance of that. It's not a boy. Um, it's a man, a man who's come to maturity, leaves his life with his family behind, his father and his mother, the picture that God gave for a family. He leaves that behind and he transitions to create this new family by leaving and cleaving to his wife. That's an old word we don't use very often, but it's a pretty good word, cleaving. The idea is to cling to one another, to be joined to one another. And in marriage, what happens is actually many problems in marriage arise by people who try to bring their family into the marriage. There is a leaving that must take place and a cleaving to one another. You can't bring your family with you into marriage. Marriage is about creating a new family, which means that in marriage, the first priority is to God and to each other. This is God's design. The two shall leave their families and cleave to each other, and they become one flesh. Now, I realize that depending on the culture that you grew up in, that may sound very different from what you've heard. Um, I I often hear people say things like this. No, marriage is not about creating a new family. Marriage is about allowing somebody else to come into our family. Uh, That's kind of the way it's perceived often. Um, Marriage is not about you leaving your family. It's about about just adding another person to the family. Uh, And and there's a sense in which that's true, but there's another sense in which that is not true. That the priority now given when two people come together 
is to this relationship and to God first to join them together and make them one flesh in a way that is not true of, uh, of, of your relationship with your parents. In marriage, the two are embarking on what, what, the, what the author of Genesis, I think, is, is, is showing us, a lifelong process, the idea of becoming one flesh. It's a lifelong process of becoming one flesh. It's very similar, actually, to what happens when we are united with the Lord. Once you think about this, when you became a Christian, were you one with the Lord? Well, there's a sense in which the answer is yes. When we died with Christ and you're raised up with him in baptism, we became one with the Lord. We, 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 we were in fellowship with him, full and complete fellowship with him. Our sins were washed away. But there's another sense in which we'd say, well, no, I wasn't fully one. There's a whole lot of things that I realized after I became a Christian, and I'm still realizing that I need to put off and I need to leave behind to become more and more one with the Lord. That is, we are one, but we're not yet fully one with God. The same thing is true in marriage. There's a, there's a sense in which when two people commit themselves into holy matrimony, matrimony in that wedding, they, and they say, I do, they are committing and becoming one flesh. There's another sense in which that's a lifelong process of becoming more and more one. It's not something that just happens one time on the wedding night and then it lasts forever. And I just want to suggest this. As you look to the Lord and those of you who are married, as you devote your lives to living together and loving each other, you will become more and more one flesh over time. I don't know if you've ever been around couples like this. We have a couple like this in our assembly today. Um, but uh, people who had a healthy marriage for 30, 40, sometimes 50 years, um, you spend time with people like that. And what you'll come to see is you'll, you'll notice they start to walk like each other. And they start to talk like each other. Some of them even start to look like each other. I don't know how that works, but it, it, it's, it's really remarkable. Um, they're becoming more and more one. And you see that happen over time. The two become one flesh. And this is God's desire. That you would, you would come to experience the deep intimacy in marriage with one another that God the Father has been experiencing since the beginning of time between Father, Son, and Spirit. This is God's plan, and this is why God created marriage. And boy, doesn't that sound beautiful. But man, it sure doesn't always seem that beautiful. Any of you guys who have been married know that this is not always the way things look or the way things go. There are a number of serious challenges that come with being married. Uh, I would argue there are some uh, extra challenges that come with living married for the Lord. There are some extra challenges that come with saying, I'm going to dedicate my marriage completely to God and I'm going to honor God in my marriage. In some ways, to do marriage the way the world does it is a lot less complicated uh, and a lot easier. But to be married for the Lord is challenging. Uh, let me just talk about a few of these challenges for a moment. One is the challenge of intimacy. We see that problem arise in the very next chapter in Genesis chapter three. When sin enters the world, what happens to the relationship between the man and the woman, automatically there are problems. There's blaming, there's, uh, there's shame, there's division. They, 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 they don't look like they're one flesh anymore in Genesis 3. Um, and that's what sin does. Sin ruins intimacy 
uh, in relationships. And I'll just say this, nothing magnifies sin like marriage. If you want to know what it's like to be married, those of you who haven't been, imagine um, someone putting, taking, taking a magnifying glass and taking all of your weaknesses and all of your flaws and all of your sins and then just putting it on a big projector for everybody around you to see. Like that's, that's what it's like to be married. Uh, marriage has a way of revealing sin. Uh, I, thought, uh, I thought when we got married that uh, it would show me more of Lindsay's flaws. I was a little bit more surprised to find how much it revealed about my own flaws and my own sins and my own weaknesses. Um, marriage can be painful because it reveals within us lots of weaknesses, sin. And, and those sins are a threat to the intimacy in our marriage. They destroy trust. And you can't have intimacy without trust. You know, a lot of people want to know, how do, how do I have a better um, love life? How do I have a better romance with my, with, my, uh, with my spouse? And, of course, there's all sorts of books written on sex and romance to, to try to solve that problem. But oftentimes, this is important to know, oftentimes the biggest threat to romance in marriage has nothing to do with the, with the sexual experience at all. It has everything to do with the trust and the intimacy that comes from that. And when that falls apart, so also does everything else. I'll just add, since we're on the subject, um, that another part of the challenge of intimacy in marriage is the struggle for sex. I think that's why Paul wrote what he did in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Um, because before you're married, Satan does everything that he can to get you to have sex. But after you're married, Satan will do everything that he can to keep you from having that in your marriage. And I think it's for this reason that Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and in verse 2, he says, because of immoralities, each man is to have his own wife and each woman is to have her own husband. The husband must fulfill his duty to his wife. Likewise, also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, also the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Stop depriving one another except by agreement for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer and come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now, there's a lot that Paul is teaching in that text, but I just want to point out one thing there, that Satan is trying to tempt you in marriage. And one of the ways that he does that is by trying to keep you from being together and from being able to have a romantic sexual relationship. I want to tell you that's a real challenge in marriage. Marriage does not remove the temptation for pornography, for sex outside of marriage. Marriage does not remove all other temptations. Uh, you might think, well, by getting married, I'm, that's going to solve all, any, any struggles or sexual sins that I have. That's just not the way it works. Not only is intimacy a struggle in marriage, but also um, there's a struggle, what I'll just call expectations. Expectations. Now, here's how this works. We all have hopes, we all have desires, we all have dreams, right? But here's what happens when you get married. You take all those hopes, all those dreams, and all those desires, and you put them in a box and you hand them to your spouse. And you say, hey, no longer are these just hopes, dreams, and, and, and desires. Now they're expectations. You need to make sure that I meet all of these things. And of course, that would be okay if all our hopes, dreams, and desires were exactly the same. But that's not how it works in marriage. Oftentimes, the desires and the hopes and the dreams that we have are not exactly the same, which brings a whole lot of challenges. And I'll just say this. So many problems in marriage come from unrealistic expectations. 
So many problems in marriage come from unrealistic, unrealistic expectations. And some of those we're not even aware of. Some of those we're blissfully unaware of, of how much we expect from uh, our spouse and how, how much we expect from one another. Uh, their expectations about money. Who's going to make the money? How much money are we going to make? How, how much are you going to have to work? How much are we both going to have to work? Is, is she going to stay at home or is she going to be working? Um, and, and, and what are we going to do with all this money once we make it? Uh, oftentimes in marriage, the two do not agree. How should the marriage, how should the money be used? How much should we allocate here? Should we budget? Should we not budget? Should we have unlimited use for whatever? Uh, should we should we put a cap on how much we're going to spend in all these different categories? Those things, oftentimes, we do not agree. Uh, even things like chores, like who's going to do the dishes? Or who's going to take out the trash? Who's going to change the light bulbs? Um, who's going to clean the house? Uh, we have different expectations when it comes to marriage. Uh, and, uh, and time, um, you know, one person says, you know what, I, I need to be at work. I'm going to work all day. I'm going to be, I'm going to, I'm going to put in these long hours. Um, you know, husband says that the wife says, no, you need to be home for dinner every night. You need to be here to help with the children. You need to be here to, uh, to work on, on these sorts of things. Um, even like things like, um, holidays, how are we going to spend our holidays? How are we going to spend the time? Uh, together. Uh, we studied this week in Romans 14. Uh, some regard one day above another. Uh, others regard every day, every day alike. You don't have to be a rocket scientist to know which one is the uh, holiday lover in our family um, and the other one who is who just regards every day alike. Um, that can that can be challenging. That can bring friction as well. Uh, there are so many different things and expectations about how I'm going to receive love, about how uh, my spouse should be giving me love, about how I should be treated and how we should uh, how we should grow our relationship. Many of those things are not are not aligned when we get married. And many of the many of the problems in life come from expecting things from our spouse um, that sometimes we don't receive at least as we'd like to. I'll just say this too, and this is related to the issue of expectations. Sometimes our expectations become more than just desires and dreams. They become idols. They become idols where if we do not get those expectations as we wish, we are devastated. Or sometimes in order to get the things that we want out of marriage, we are willing to compromise things with God. Remember the story of Solomon. Where Solomon allowed his wives to turn his heart away from God. To, to, to Solomon, his marriages became more important to him than the actually pleasing and being faithful to God. The problem of idolatry is a real struggle in marriage. And social media, I think, enhances this problem in marriage. Uh, when I look at all my friends' Facebook pages, it's amazing. Every one of them has a perfect marriage. Every one of them, like every friend that I have who's married, I look at their Facebook page and it's like, man, they have a perfect marriage. And I know that's true because you can see it in the pictures. If you look at their pictures, everybody's always smiling. They're hugging. They're kissing. You get on social media and you're like, man, everybody else has this wonderful marriage. What's going on with me? And I think sometimes we start to take a look in the mirror and we think about where our marriage is. Our marriage doesn't look like that. Our marriage isn't always fun. We're not always having a good time. We don't always have great conversation. There must be something seriously wrong. And we get discouraged. Sometimes we give up hope. 
Sometimes our expectations for marriage, when our expectations for marriage disappoint us, it reveals to us that actually what we're putting our hope in is not in God, but is in something else, sometimes in our marriage. We need to watch out for that. Communication is a real challenge in marriage. There's a reason why scripture has so many instructions about how to communicate. Read Ephesians 4, read Ephesians 5 again, and look at what the scripture teaches. Uh, I've often wondered, why is it that I can communicate so clearly? Not that I communicate always so clearly, but why is it that it seems like I can communicate so clearly with everybody else except for my spouse? Um, Why is it that I can talk to other people who say things that are are annoying to me or frustrating to me or, or, or upsetting to me and I can just stay cool? But when my wife does those things, it sets me off. Communication is a big, big challenge in marriage. Um, and then I, th- I would say, too, just along those lines, um, there's the challenge of just the valleys that come with marriage, um, the deep, deep valleys. Marriage can be filled with deep valleys. And God never promised that he would remove them. God never promised that marriage would be easy, that marriage would always be fruitful in every season and wonderful and enjoyable. Um, he never promised that, and marriage is certainly not easy. So having said that, let me just uh, take some time to give some specific advice from Scripture um, to those who are unmarried and to those who are uh, married. Uh, first, I want to start with those who are unmarried who are here in, in our assembly, uh, who, are, who are joining us online. Um, what's some specific piece of advice? How do you help married couples in the kingdom of God? First, Uh, Let me just say this. Um, We need to seek fellowship. If you're unmarried, you need to seek fellowship with married members of the body. Now, that may seem duh, right? Ephesians 4, we are members of each other. So, of course, we should have that relationship. But um, all too often, I do think this happens where we think because I'm unmarried, I should spend most or maybe even all of my time with those who are unmarried. Sometimes what I've seen happen is among saints of God, they'll spend even more time with unmarried non-Christians than they're spending with married Christians. And I want to suggest this. As a Christian, we have far more in common with a married, if you're unmarried, you have far more in common with a married member of the body of Christ than you have with an unmarried person who is not. And we ought to live like that. It ought to be that our relationships with brethren become important to us where we treat one another like family. Um, We ought to seek to learn from married members, not just about marriage, but just about godliness, about faithfulness, about how to live righteous and holy lives from one another. I'll just say this too, a second piece of advice here is if you're unmarried, be your married brother or your married sister's keeper. Be your married brother or your married sister's keeper too. Uh, Don't assume that because your brother or sister is married and they're a Christian, they must be okay. You wouldn't want people to assume that just because you're unmarried and you're a Christian, you're okay, right? Sometimes we struggle. Sometimes we have hardships. Sometimes we're struggling just to do what is right and to be pleasing to God. And Christians struggle in marriage just like Christians struggle living unmarried. 
We need to care for one another, watch, for, watch out for one another. Uh, ask, how is your marriage? How are you doing? How can I help? Which leads to the third thing, um, finding ways to serve your married brothers and sisters. Um, which, by the way, one of the ways that you do that is just being patient. Sometimes married, married members are not as available as you'd like for them to be. They're not as, uh, they're not as uh, able to uh, be there for you as, as you'd wish that they should be. And that's one of the ways that we bear with one another. But I'll just say, too, some of you guys have strengthened our marriage. Some of the unmarried members in this church have strengthened our marriage in so many ways uh, by praying earnestly for us, by checking on us, by helping us and taking care of our children so that we can, we can have time to focus on building up our marriage. And I thank God for all of you for, for that. Find ways to serve, not just those who are unmarried, but also your married brothers and sisters. Um, and here's a couple of things to think about if you have a desire to be married. Um, for those of you who are unmarried but have a desire to be married. Um, one is spend time learning from married couples about marriage. I mean, again, may sound obvious, uh, but I've seen some who want to be married, but they never actually spend any time with those who are married and have godly marriages. And I would suggest this is a mistake. You're gonna you're you're gonna learn more from godly couples about how to be married than you're gonna than you're gonna learn from your unmarried friends, um, particularly unmarried friends of the world. It's gonna be harder to learn uh, about marriage in in that way. Spend time with married members so that you can learn about the gifts and the challenges of. Mar marriage. Seek counsel from married couples, uh, particularly married couples who have the kind of marriage that you want to have one day, that you would like to be a part of, uh, and spend time with them. Uh, let me add to that, too. Uh, if you are unmarried, focus more on being the right kind of person than on finding the right kind of person. Now, I'm not saying it's not important to find the right kind of person. If you are seeking to be married and you're a Christian, you should be seeking someone who is godly, someone who is righteous, someone who has the same goals and aims in life of pleasing the Lord in all things as you are. But sometimes we give so much focus and attention to finding the right person that even when we find that person, we're, in, we're completely ill-equipped to get married because we haven't become the right kind of person. We haven't worked on our own character. We haven't worked on our own heart. We haven't worked on our own relationship with God enough to be in any sort of place where we can be the kind of marriage partner that we need to be. Being married for the Lord is not just about finding the right kind of person to marry. It's about becoming the kind of person in marriage who will glorify God and look like God and play the role of Jesus. I'll just say this. You don't have to be married to develop intimacy we talked about that a month ago, but developing intimacy in your platonic relationships will go a long way to helping you develop intimacy if God grants you to marry in the future. Learning to have close relationships with one another, learning to, learning to love one another diligently through the frustrations, through the annoyances, through the hardships and the challenges of friendship is a really important part of, uh, of preparing for a marriage. Let me speak for a moment uh, before we wrap up to, to those who are married. Let me just give you a few pieces of advice. One, and uh, this comes straight from Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22 to 33. Paul stresses this idea 
in this text, particularly in his instructions to husbands, where he says in verse 26 that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word. He said, husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. And here's how you're going to do that. You're going to sanctify her. You're going to cleanse her. You're going to wash her with uh, wash her with water and with the word and that you can present her to God in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle. You know what Paul is saying here? What he's saying here is that the purpose and the priority and the goal of marriage is actually not happiness, it is holiness. That is to say, the reason God created marriage was not primarily so that I would become happy. That happiness is simply a byproduct of a marriage that is dedicated wholly to the Lord. And that's why at weddings you'll hear people talk about uh, this idea of this being holy matrimony, because that's what you're doing when you get married is you're setting yourselves apart for God and for each other. You're separating yourself from everything else for God and for one another. And just as the goal of Christ's love for the church was not simply to forgive us, but to remove every spot and wrinkle. God's not just simply trying to wash away my sins. He's trying to help me stop sinning and become like him in every area. He's trying to make me holy and blameless. So that he could present me and present his church to God in glory. So also marriage is about helping each other to become holy and blameless before God. And as I mentioned earlier, marriage is going to reveal to you spots and blemishes in your character and your spouse's character. But that's so that you, through the power of Christ and the grace that he gives, can help one another to remove them and become gloriously prepared for God. Marriage is not primarily about personal happiness. You know, that's the reason there are so many divorces today. So many people say, hey, I'll marry you as long as you make me happy. But when you stop making me happy, then the marriage ends. Marriage is not primarily about personal happiness. It's about mutual holiness. It's about us working together to help one another to become holy to God. And happiness is simply a byproduct that will come from diligent devotion to following God's pattern for marriage. Marriage is about learning to know one another, to love one another, to become one with one another. And in this, you can see that what God is doing in marriage is he's teaching us how to share in the oneness and the love and the intimacy that he has had with the Father, with the Son, and with the Spirit for all eternity. If you can remember this, It'll help you not to panic when some days are not enjoyable in marriage, when some days are difficult in marriage, when at times you may even be unhappy in your marriage or maybe disappointed or devastated. Instead, it will help us to embrace the process, the difficult process of becoming holy and blameless before the Lord. So make holiness, not happiness, the focus of your marriage. Um, Secondly, Focus on deepening your agape love for your spouse. Now, there's two parts of what I'm saying here. The first is focus on you. Focus on what you can control, which is you. One of the most important lessons that I learned when I uh, took a job with Teach for America and they moved us to Mississippi 
to train us in five weeks for how to teach teach uh, seventh through twelfth graders. Um, one of the most important lessons they taught us in that uh, we were taught in the first week of training what we called locus of control. And the idea was we're sending you into these low performing schools that you're going to see all kinds of mess. You're going to see all kinds of terrible things about school systems and how the government works and how public schools work and, and et cetera, et cetera. And there's going to be all kinds of things that you're going to learn that you have absolutely no control over. And you're going to have to let go of those things and you're going to have to ignore those things and focus on what you can control, which is you, your classroom and the way you behave towards your students and how you help the people around you. This is a really important lesson. Saved me a lot, a lot of pain and misery in the classroom. It was even more important in marriage. Because here's the thing, when you get married, you have absolutely no control over how your spouse treats you. You have no control over how your spouse may react, how your spouse may live. You have no control over what they do, how they behave. Your only opportunity is to change you and to focus on you. And that's really important. Um, there's a book I like to give to uh, married couples. Um, it's How to Save Your Marriage Alone. And I don't give that to people because uh, normally because um, – I believe that it's only one of them trying to save the marriage. I give that because sometimes what we want when we seek help in our marriages, what we want is we want everybody to come and point out everything that's wrong with my spouse and get my spouse to change this and this and this and this and this. When actually the only thing I have control over is me. And that's where my focus ought to be on changing me. So focus on your love. And let me suggest this. Focus on your agape love. As much as we talk about it, uh, love is hard for us to understand, I think, in part because the word for love in English is overworked. Um, one dictionary I consulted had 28 different definitions for love. And we use the same word to mean all kinds of different things. They didn't do that uh, quite the same in Greek. There were some different words that were used for love. But in our culture, when we say I love something, we often speak of love as a feeling primarily. We mean I feel love for you. But when the Bible speaks of agape love, though it is not you, it's not usually talking simply about a feeling. When God so agape loved the world that he gave his only son, that love was primarily active, not emotional. Now, that's not to say that emotions and feelings are involved in love. They certainly are. And there are many different words in, in, in uh, Greek that are, that are translated into English, love, like Philadelphia, that speak about some of those different emotional, affectionate parts of love. But what I'm trying to argue here is, notice in, in Ephesians 5, if you look carefully there, that the words that he uses to describe what love looks like for the husband to love his wife are active words. So when he talks to the wife, he says to submit. When he talks to the husband, he says to sanctify, to nourish, to cherish, to respect. These are all verbs describing actions that must be taken in order for your marriage to mature into what God designed it to be. Think of marriage as a garden. Marriage is a garden and love is the fertilizer. That agape love is the fertilizer that helps your other forms of love to grow and to deepen over time. 
A lot of people are shocked to find that in marriage, eventually in marriage, that honeymoon, you know, high eventually starts to wane. And then the hard work begins of, of the daily grind of tilling and working in the garden to grow that love. And this is the thing about farming. You don't get the fruit right away. You can't plant um, those daffodils and see them pop up right away. You can't plant an apple tree and reap the fruit that comes from it in the next week. It takes long days of hard work, long weeks, long months, sometimes years in order to see that fruit develop and be produced. And the same is true in marriage. If we can see it that way, then again, it will help us not to panic when we're not seeing immediate response or reaction or fruit coming from our marriage. Sometimes it takes time to work hard. And so a biblical definition of agape love is agape love is a consistent choice to do what is best for the one that I love. A consistent choice to do what's best for one another. And ultimately, this is what we do when we get married. We're making a vow for the rest of our lives to do to do what's best for the one that I love and the one that I'm joining to and becoming one flesh. with. And I'll just say this. If agape love is the foundation of our marriage, that becomes a soil in which the other forms, affection, emotion, feelings of love can develop and grow. Which leads to the third point. Um, we're almost finished here. We've got a couple more things to say. Third point is we need to make a decision to never give up on our marriage. If you are married and you are in the Lord, then you've got to make a decision to never give up on your marriage. No matter how difficult or deep the valleys may be, divorce is a word that should not be in a Christian's marriage vocabulary. It's hated by the Lord. According to Malachi chapter 2, and it ought to be hated by all who call on the name of the Lord. We've got to make a decision that no matter how difficult it gets, we will not give up. We will keep working. We will keep striving. We will keep trying to honor God by loving our spouse and seeking to please him. How do you do that? How do you do that when things get really rough? How do you do that when your spouse is failing you on every, in every front? How do you do that when your spouse is at their worst? How do you do that when you're at your worst? How do we do that? Lastly, we look to Jesus. Only Jesus can strengthen us and motivate us to keep going. And we'll find the strength to continue loving our spouse. We'll find the strength and the motivation to continue loving our spouse by looking at Jesus who loved us when we were completely and utterly unlovable. Think about that. You see, again, most marriages fail when we look at our spouse and we say, I can't love them anymore. This person's unlovable. They're so disrespectful. They're so hateful. They're so, they're so mean. They're so, they're so spiteful. I can't love them anymore. And when we think about that's who we were when Christ said, I'll come down from heaven to earth and suffer on a cross and die for us. He loved us when we were at our worst. Jesus faithfully loving us, and he proved that there's nothing he wouldn't do to bring about our salvation. If that's true, what's going to motivate you husbands to love your wives as Christ Christ loved the church? This This is the hard part about this. In marriage, husbands, we get to play the role of Jesus. Loving our wives 
like Christ loved the church. How do we how do we find the motivation to do that when our wives may disrespect us, when our wives may hurt us, when our wives may do things that are so painful to us? Well, we remember that our life is not about us. That we, like our Savior, are laying down our life for our spouse. Your life is not about you. It's about her. So when you're disappointed uh, with yourself, when you make mistakes, when you uh, do what's wrong, do you stop nourishing and cherishing your body? Do you just start, um, do you stop eating and just say, I'm going to let myself waste away because I made a mistake? No, it's your body. You take care of it because it's yours. And when you're married and your wife uh, becomes your own body, your wife becomes your body. So just because things are not going well doesn't mean you can stop taking care of it. You still have a responsibility before God to work, to love, to nourish, to cherish. She's yours. And your responsibility as head of the relationship is to love her and to cherish her and to nourish her. Not only when she's at her best, but also when she's at her worst. Not only when she's showing you love and respect, but also when she's unlovable and disrespectful. Not only when she makes you happy, but even when she frustrates you and makes you quite unhappy. Jesus never stopped giving us breath or his love in all the times that we failed him. He continued to love us, graciously nourish us, and cherish us. And we need to do the same. She is yours. You are one flesh. Wives, the same is true for you. What's going to motivate you to be submissive? To your husband when he's annoying, when he's unreasonable, when he's selfish, when he's arrogant, when he's impatient and inconsiderate. It's Jesus. It's the love that Jesus had for you when you were still his enemy. It's the mercy that he showed you. It's the forgiveness that he's constantly giving you that empowers you to be gracious and forgiving in return toward him. And this is why it's so important that you see God first in your marriage. Because if God is not at the center of your marriage, then you will crush each other with the weight of the expectations that you put on each other, which neither of you will ever be able to adequately and completely fulfill. If God, though, is at the center of your marriage, then you will find in him the satisfaction that you so richly need. And that'll free you to be able to love your spouse, even when your spouse is hard to love. It'll free you to be able to serve your spouse regardless of what you receive in return. The greatest joy comes from receiving the love of the Father and of the Son and then being able to give that same love to another. And if we devote ourselves to loving and serving each other in in the way that God designed us to do, marriage does, in fact, become a foretaste of the joy and the union and the oneness that one, we'll one day experience when we're reunited with the Lord. May God help us in our marriages to glorify him. And may we, God help us as the church to stay married to him and faithful to him in all things. Let us pray. Holy Father, thank you so much for the blessing of marriage that you've given to us. Thank you for the married couples that you've blessed us with in this church. Thank you for Jesus, our savior, who has shown us the way how to sustain our marriages, how to grow in our marriages, how to be pleasing to you in our marriages in every respect. And I pray, oh God, for those who are married in this church, may you build us up. May you help us to stay faithful to you, faithful to our spouses, faithful to um, your word. And I pray, oh God, that you will help uh, those who are unmarried in this church to also stay faithful to you 
and faithful to your word. May we build one another up. May we work together for your glory and for the upbuilding of your church so that your name will be magnified in this place. And people will see our marriages and people will see the relationships, the family that we atmosphere that we have here. And they will say, truly, this could only come from you, from the one true God. I pray, God, that in our lives, we would magnify and glorify you and that in everything, we would be pleasing to you. In Jesus we pray, amen.